0: We've tried to make the point that, to some extent, you know, like there's a disparaging connotation with gurus, and we, the way that we have framed it, particularly with the online secular gurus, it's it's overall negative, right? The 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 way that we add the kind the key characteristics that we identify of that set, but they're actually you know public intellectual or prominent thinker or whatever. You put to it is is fundamentally a neutral thing people can be carl sagan types or they can be andrew wakefield types and there often is similar kinds of rhetoric or levels of confidence that individuals have and and you know charisma is a huge part of that so i don't think it's our position would not be that like anybody that takes on the rule ro- the role of a public intellectual that promotes themselves and does multi-hour, like, individual lectures into a camera. There's something special about those people. That's definitely true. Like, but if you can, you know, monologue for hours. Um, but it's more that there's a particular type of exploitative rhetorical style which I think is more toxic and more damaging. And that's the main thing that we are critiquing.
1: Welcome to The Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Down. I guess the culture, that's capital C culture, has officially reached peak podcast, since this is a podcast interview with a podcaster whose podcast is about podcasts. Chris Cavanaugh is the host of Decoding the Gurus, a podcast that by its own description is an anthropologist and a psychologist listening to the greatest minds the world has to offer and trying their best to understand what they're talking about. But a little more specifically, I would say what they're doing is trying to map the messages of a particular category of online thinker. Uh, Sometimes these folks are referred to as the IDW or intellectual dark web. Uh, Sometimes they're associated with a concept called sense-making. That's a pretty broad concept. Um, And they're people who have achieved something close to guru status on YouTube and on their podcasts. Uh, And uh, in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, this is for questioning certain liberal pieties and resisting the so-called woke narrative. As you probably know, I am actually a follower and in some cases a fan of many of these people uh, with the requisite caveats, um, but several of them have been on this show. Nonetheless, I'm also a fan of Decoding the Gurus, and I invited Chris on to talk about why he and his co-host Matt Brown started the podcast, what they're getting out of it, and what happens when the gurus, they criticize, come on the show to confront them. I also invited Chris on because of his unique accent. He's from Northern Ireland, but is currently living in Japan. Not that that affects his accent, though maybe it does. Anyway, here's our conversation. Chris Kavanaugh, welcome to The Unspeakable.
0: Oh, thanks for inviting me and for pronouncing my name correctly.
1: Oh, it's such a simple pronunciation. What? How, what do people... I, it's spelled a little bit differently, but I don't yeah. know about the pronunciation.
0: You, you, well, you would think so. It certainly became more famous, you know, thanks to the Supreme Court judge in America. But yeah, the, good company. Yeah, but uh, uh, I've heard people at various conferences pronounce it in remarkably interesting ways. So it's it's not a foregone conclusion. But I don't I don't mind anyway. It's you know, uh, it's it like you say, it's weirdly spelled.
1: Well, my the the pronunciation of my last name is like I have to I'm going to have to devote a whole show to explaining explaining that cuz I've I've just made it I've I've made it unnecessarily complicated. Anyway, you are the co-host of the podcast Decoding the Gurus. I should say right up front that you do have a co-host the Australian psychologist, Matt Brown. I suppose technically I should have had you both on, but I felt like I could only handle one of you at a time for some
0: reason. That's all right. Um, You got the better one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I I hope he doesn't feel left out. And I don't know how it would be to uh, coordinate the time zones. It's already, so it's 8 p.m. here in New York and it's uh,
0: 10 a.m. here,
1: 10 a.m. and in Japan and you you have a Japanese accent just in case anybody's wondering.
0: I, <laughs> I have a, yeah, a, a, probably a weirdly combined accent, but the primary influence is from uh, Belfast in Northern Ireland.
1: Yes. Okay. Well, so I don't know what it says that I've moved from interviewing other podcasters to uh, interviewing a podcaster whose podcast is devoted to other podcasts. In any case, it feels significant. If not, possibly, a sign of the apocalypse.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so. there, 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 are some. We we had an episode we did where we covered a conversation between uh, two people who were discussing another conversation that the person had had with a a guy that was a neo-Nazi. Um, that that was the, the the kind of format for the discussion, but it does. It does get very meta at times. And sometimes wondering, do should we be talking about that? But but still, you know, that's the internet.
1: Or you could do like like actually in real time, like as people listen to other podcasts, like Mystery Science Theater
0: of yeah. podcasts. Well that's that's <laughs> right. I know we you know, we we have went to like figures like Carl Sagan and Anthony DeMello on occasion to uh try and step out of the contemporary culture wars at least once in a while
1: at least once in a while don't do it too often because you'll lose your audience but um yes so one of the reasons i wanted to have you on in addition to being a fan of decoding the gurus is that i suspect a lot of listeners of this podcast are familiar with many of the people you discuss on yours you you broadly define your subjects as gurus sort of internet youtube-based gurus you define them that way specifically, but they do run the gamut. Um, but you have a special interest in the niche we sometimes call the IDW, people interested in what's sometimes called sense-making. I have my own story of becoming immersed in a lot of these people, um, and uh, in some cases, eventually, not all cases, but you know, in some cases, it's kind of disenchanted. So I thought maybe we would start by you talking about how and when you stumbled into this world and what piqued your interest enough to eventually start a podcast about it?
0: Yeah. So, uh, maybe the, while it's on my mind, the, the podcast with Matt started as we actually were, we were following each other on Twitter and, you know, just having conversation and whatnot as you do, but the, then we were both academics and we're interested in this phenomenon that we were commenting on and noticing about online gurus or secular gurus, uh, gurus that weren't really fitting into the traditional mold of like alternative health and spirituality, but rather were either political or, or scientific focused. And we, we find this interesting because our, uh, conspiracy communities and, Kind of skeptical groups and all those kind of things were uh, an interest of both of us. So we initially were planning to write an academic article together, as academics are want to do. Um, yeah, and we we wrote out a kind of uh, skeleton of an article and were identifying the key characteristics. And those are part of uh, that. Those conversations that we had for the article um, are what led to us to decide to make the podcast together. But it, it's kind of an outgrowth from an initial quasi-academic interest, um, the, the particular podcast. But um, before that, my myself, I had an interest in conspiracy theorists and alternative medicine for, I guess, over 20 years now not not from the point of view of being a big fan of them but interested in the psychology and to some extent the debunking and uh, responding to them the like the skeptical movement and online atheism and all that kind of thing um and and then my academic interests are in the psychology of religion and ritual so it kind of all meshes together into a semi coherent topic of interest for me and i find figures like sam harris and the weinsteins um and so on steins steins Steins. Steins. yes god i get it wrong every time thank you
1: um, you you would you would uh, you would endear yourself to them more if you just pronounce their name right. Just the I, tiniest I, thing you could do.
0: I know, I, and it's it's constantly running in my head to to <laughs> do so, but I can't. I don't know why. It's uh, I'll blame it on the accent. It's an accent thing. But oh, that's uh, good. Yeah,
1: you can yeah. hide behind
0: that. Yeah. So I I think that um, the I partly have an interest in the IDW's, your particular. Because in some respects, I'm sympathetic to the criticisms they have of the the woke left or the far left. Um, But I I find those sympathies do not endear me to the anti-institutional conspiracy mongering that seems to accompany it all too often in that sphere. So I find it probably more frustrating because of the fact that I share... Some of the frustrations that they have, or uh, yeah, that so that's a very long-winded answer, Megan. But that, that hopefully some of that covered what you were interested. Well, and in.
1: I and I relate to that a lot. It's like we get invested in—I don't want to say our—not that these people are are heroes, but you get in, invested in people that you relate to, and then you get easily disappointed in them, right? So, so when did uh you sort of? start following some of these people what year are we talking about and what was were there sort of a couple main figures or are we talking about the weinsteins and uh no. sam harris or who are we talking about
0: yeah so i was interested in like on- internet atheism or online atheism round about you know the early 2000s um but i was never never a, a like a huge fan of people in that area. I liked Richard Dawkins science writing. I I read Sam Harris's books and whatnot. And I, I thought it was interesting, but not, I wouldn't have put myself like as a huge fan. I would have been somebody who was like interested in skepticism and critical thinking. And I would still count myself interested in those areas, but I, I wasn't a huge kind of proponent of those communities, even though, I was involved with them like the Simon Singh case uh, against chiropractors in the UK was probably the initial thing that I was most involved in with.
1: Like, oh, I'm not familiar with that case.
0: It's uh so there's a science writer in England called Simon Singh he's wrote a, a bunch of books um on popular science topics and he was he wrote an article in the Guardian um during chiropractic awareness week or some some week celebrating chiropractors and <laughs> um, <laughs> It does they exist. suspend the parking <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. regulations. It's a, it's a marketing thing, but, uh, you know, he did a an awareness article that was about the fact that it's mostly pseudoscience and they advocate for some treatments which can be, you know, harmful. Um, and and he was promptly sued by the British Chiropractic Association. And then there was a uh, libel case, which became a kind of cause, a kind of big focus case for freedom of speech versus libel laws in the UK. And eventually he lost initially, then he won on appeal, but it led to reforms in the libel law. And I was uh, attending the the court at some places because I was living in London and uh, covering that case on a blog. And so I was was interested in those kind of things uh, for a long time. And it, it probably grew out of the thing, which it often does at that age of like a teenage interest in you know conspiracy theories and alternative spirituality and all that. And then a I don't I don't think I ever was deeply enchanted by that, but I became more interested in the disenchantment fears, I think, and I've I've remained interested in that. And actually, probably I when I went to university. My initial topic of study was Buddhism. That uh, I went to this very far left university in the UK, and I I wanted to study Buddhism because I was interested in it, in meditation, and probably in a similar way to someone like Sam Harris. Uh, but when I went to university and studied about the like the history and sociology and you know anthropology research on actual Buddhist countries and Buddhist history, I found that you know the Western portrayal of it was deeply inaccurate and the actual histories were like more interesting but much less uh, idealized so that that was probably uh, a like watershed moment for me in uh, my evolution as a person kind of thing
1: so who were the people that you and matt were talking about and observing when you started to formulate the ideas for your article
0: so mainly the people that we covered at the early stages of the podcast. So the Weinsteins. Uh, and we should
1: say uh, we're talking about, um, we're talking about, it's, it's a little confusing because the Weinsteins actually refer to three people, but only one of them is actually, only two of them are actually named Weinstein. So there's two, the brothers, Eric Weinstein and Brett Weinstein, and Brett's wife is Heather Hying. Yes.
0: Okay. Yes. And, so the uh, the threesome. Yes. So the, and and Eric coined the term IDW. That yes. was Popularized in- intellectual by dark web. Yeah. Intellectual dark web that was popularized by Barry Weiss in the New York Times. Um, but so uh, those figures. But actually, they only came across. Uh, I think both of our readers relatively late. Before that, it would have been people like Jordan Peterson and Nassim Taleb and. That that kind of online, very opinionated, highly educated, and uh, referencing, you know, some area of specialty, whether it's psychology or mathematics or evolutionary biology, that that kind of thing which which felt different than what and and particularly rose to prominence maybe around about the same period that the trump era begin and i'm not tying the the two things together i just mean it was around that era that like jordan peterson's star rose
1: yeah i think was it the fall of 2016 when jordan peterson had the uh you know the pronoun uh brouhaha was that that same fall, I think.
0: It it could be. I'm terrible with years, ye but it, it definitely, it, I mean, to my mind, it's kind of all a melange <laughs> together. Right, that, right, right. Uh, period.
1: So were you, okay. So, and had you heard of Jordan Peterson before that?
0: No. Were you aware of his a, work? No, not at, not at all. And, uh, and I, I work as, uh, in a psychology department but that that isn't to say that he wasn't influential within his area he just wasn't like a figure you know like stephen pinker or someone like that who everyone would know or even paul bloom but they you know if they aren't in the area um so yeah jordan peter i came to know jordan peterson in the same way everyone did which was like him becoming a figure of note online
1: Yeah. Although, did you see the film about him, the the rise of Jordan Peterson, by uh, directed by Patricia Marcosha? It's excellent. And so she, it's a it's a documentary about him, and produced by by her husband. And she, but she was, they were doing a film about him anyway, about his relationship with the um, the native, the, the, the 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 artwork of a a native peoples in his area in Canada. And it was completely unrelated to anything political. And as they were filming that whole thing blew up. And so they captured the whole thing and it's a really excellent film and like totally gets into the nuances and the just really, you know, strange like contradictions of his his views but also just his you know the phenomenon of him anyway so I guess I don't I don't know how I even thought of that yeah but so there are people who and I actually have run into people who have been following him for like decades and loved maps of meaning you know his his first book and so all that so okay but that's not you you were you were not aware of him no (laughs)
0: <laughs> and and I will also say that, you know, I, I know that Jordan, for example, had some media profile before he was on some, you know, Canadian talk shows or had these little segments where people, sometimes the clips crop up. So it it isn't like he was just discovered with that event. But I think his global prominence uh, came more, much more recently.
1: Right. So, like, what was your initial impression were you interested in what he was saying or or were you interested in the people who were interested in him
0: no it's so that like probably my initial reaction in most of the cases where there is uh like a viral video about you know woke students outrage directed at professors uh is to feel sympathy for the professors (laughs) to some extent but you know probably because of that I'm an academic and because in those videos, it, it is often the case that the students come across as, you know, in intolerant and relatively unhinged. So uh, the initial impressions are, are usually, you know, sympathetic, the same for Brett Weinstein. Um, so yeah, I did it. Right? I tried hard. Yeah, and it, now, it,
1: now you're on notice. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I, I think my initial thought was sympathy and I didn't really pay that much attention to him, to be honest, like, uh, although it may or may not seem like it, I, you know, the online culture war is, is something that I, um, that I definitely have an interest in, but I try to limit my exposure to it to a certain extent. So, uh, I Jordan chugged along in the background and it was only really as his profile grew and I started to see him, you know, appear on interviews, uh, like the famous one that he had with the, I can't remember if it's ITV or BBC journalist. Oh, with Kathy it. Newman. Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, so, Channel 4, I think. Yeah. Channel 4, yeah. So those kind of things were when I started, you know, seeing him and then see people cite his ideas and so on. And yeah, so I, maybe it was the second wave of, of him coming that I I noticed, like, his actual output. But it, it, I would have been much – like, I read his book, 12 Rules for Life, way after it had peaked in popularity. Uh, so it, it wasn't – those figures were of interest, but I was uh, – they were kind of, you know, peripheral.
1: Right. Okay, so but your first show, you guys started the show September eighth, twenty twenty. I'm looking at my phone here, actually. Eric and Brett Weinstein, a dark horse gallops through the portal. That was your first episode. <laughs> so, what was going on at that time? Like, okay, so well, how did you go from article to uh, to, to podcast? Because that's not that's uh, not like a something that you hear. Uh, academic, it's not ne- necessarily a natural transition.
0: No, um, and that-
1: maybe it should I- be.
0: But <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'd be careful what you wish for. Can you but imagine the, yeah.
1: if every <laughs> yeah. academic article became a podcast? It wouldn't surprise me. There's probably more podcasts than academic articles at this point.
0: Well, yeah, I don't know if that's a good state of affairs. <laughs> <So>, but the, <laughs> the um, yeah, the. So whenever the we started, so I had been discussing doing a podcast um, on that kind of topic on and off with people for a while. I think partly because. I listened to a lot of podcasts and also because when it came to Brett and Eric's episode in particular, that, that did serve as something as a catalyst because the story that they wove in the, the portal, which is Eric's ep, uh, podcast, was this kind of grand story about the suppression of a really important scientific discovery that Brett had made as a PhD student. And listening to the story, it, it sounded very convincing. You know, it's people talking about expertise and all these scientific technical topics. And it basically sounds like there was, you know, something like a huge cover-up and a great misjustice done and, and something that could have real implications for health. But This is the telomeres thing, right? Yes, this is like discovering that... Uh, laboratory mice have some feature which makes them potentially ill-suited as test subjects for drugs, right? We, according to Brett, we'd have these grand implications and that the idea was stolen and repackaged by a Nobel laureate. So it's it's really, you know, relatively high stakes claims. Um, but in listening to that podcast as an academic, there was so much of it that just didn't add up and so much which was kind of putting a grandiose spin on something that was extremely mundane like a rejection from the journal nature which is one of the like most prominent uh scientific journals that exists and they presented being desk rejected which means you get rejected before the article is reviewed as this you know like unbelievable thing that who, how could this have happened without suppression but the reality is like seventy percent of people submitted to Nature get desk rejected, so it's a completely unnotable event in any academic's life. And uh, but they presented it, you know, as as a very nefarious thing. And there were lots of little other examples like that. And it felt like, as academics, when I talked to it with other academics, we we immediately got, you know, why that story doesn't hold up, and. It, but it isn't immediately apparent unless you, you know, have experience doing academic publishing or you're familiar with how the journals work. And so, part the the motivation to do the podcast was because it felt like, although there was a lot of criticisms of figures within the intellectual dark web, um, and uh, including people like Eric and Brett, it was often coming from a point of political disagreement, and from that. You know the people had much more progressive views, or, or were it's a, very sympathetic to like what you you know people would see as woke positions. And Matt and I were not coming from that point of view, but we had the criticisms, uh, you know, quite strong criticisms still. So it felt like there was a space of legitimate, uh like. Point of view that we could represent were looking at things from an academic perspective and 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 being critical, but not have it so easily dismissed because we're you know political partisans. As it ends up, people do dismiss it anyway <laughs> on those grounds. But um, but that was part of the idea was that you know the it was frustrating to see the way people were presenting uh, kind of topics that were often related to psychology or, you know, academic disciplines, but it, it, it just didn't feel like it was being represented accurately. So that that was part of the impetus. Um, and, and the first episode was, as a result, like three hours or something like that.
1: And what was going on? So that was September of 2020. Where they, weren't, they weren't on about the vaccines at that point obviously.
0: No, no, they, they were not. Uh, But I think this is something that I would emphasize is that when you look into a lot of the people that we do look into, so people who are critical now of Brett and and Heller will often say, well, you know, they went crazy. They were, they were good. And then they got onto this ivermectin and anti-vaccine stuff. And now, uh, they've they've just like lost their way there. But actually, when you look at a lot of the earlier material, it has all of the same ingredients and it has the same logic about the conspiratorial thinking, the self-aggrandizing uh, views about their takes on research, and it's so it, the fact that they ended up going down the anti-vaccine route is not that's surprising when you have that kind of approach and that's part of the things that we want to highlight is some of the blind spots or the rhetorical techniques or the ways that people are reasoning about stuff or presenting evidence and how it then lends itself you know to things like anti-vaccine rhetoric if the opportunity presents itself so it wasn't that much of a surprise to for us to see where they have went, but in saying that, I I would not have imagined that they would have gone in this heavily on the the kind of ivermectin advocacy and anti vaccine stance. So uh, that that was surprising. How quickly these things happen.
1: So are you saying now? I sound like Kathy Newman. So what you're <laughs> yeah. saying is. You were seeing kind of the seeds of this even as early as fall, spring of 2017 when the Evergreen thing blew up because I think that's when most people got introduced to Brett and Heather, certainly Brett.
0: Not that early because I didn't pay any attention to them that early. Like I knew about the Evergreen event the same way that most people did that you know some professor was hounded out of his position for uh, by woke mob. That was the the view of the, the event that I had, I probably have a slightly different interpretation then, but I mean more uh, whenever I actually started to pay attention to Brett's content um, and listening to the dark horse and, and so on. It's not that it was really un- before then, I think at a superficial level, the, there isn't that many red flags. There are now. (laughs) It's kind of, it's very obvious now. But I I think with a lot of people that we would cover, there actually is a lot of legitimate points or at least, you know, reasonably well-expressed opinions, which are then just, they just have these, these things layered on top. So we talk about how people are very good um at least within the sphere of the gurus that we look at, at using strategic disclaimers, so they'll often add in after they make some like twenty minute long thing about a, a grand conspiracy to suppress the truth, and then they'll add in, but we we don't know that that's the case and we're just talking about you know probabilities. We're not telling anyone what to think.
1: Right. But it can, it's like it, investment advice, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, and it, like it, to me, it's kind of surprising, but it's actually it's effective because it just you can talk for like forty minutes about a topic and then add in a couple of disclaimers, and then when you criticize the people for you know when they they we wove a grand conspiracy for 30 minutes, people will point to the you know the one minute disclaimer and say, look, they didn't say they were certain. And it's, uh, so these, but these kind of things I think are slightly different than what happens with charismatic gurus of the conventional sense, because those people would not have, you know, so readily invoked like scientific, what's the word? Like humility, epistemic Mm -hmm. humility.
1: Epistemic humility.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting thing because it kind of like for an academic, you're really used to people, uh. Promoting themselves without promoting themselves, or or like hyperbolically <laughs> presenting. Yeah, that doesn't their- work
1: anymore. That's that. Yeah, are you? Uh, this is. What, I know, I know, but this is humility. Doesn't is not good for the brand.
0: But that's see. That's the thing. It, I know. I, I, I know. I, I, no, I. I mean, a humility, something which looks like humility, but which is not humility, right. is good for your brand. So you'll you'll hear whenever we did the Eric and Brett episode, and I think now it would be very different, but many people responded saying, oh, Eric's such a like pompous fool, but his his brother Brett didn't really want to talk about the story. And he was, you know, he was a kind of shrinking violet by comparison. And the by comparison is the important point there, because yes, he was, you know, compared to Eric, less uh, grandiose, but he still talked, about having a place in the history of science. They talked about, you know, Nobel prizes that were not awarded and that they had made, that they see things in the discipline, which will completely fundamentally change, you know, the whole discipline of evolutionary biology, but other people haven't been able to recognize it yet. So like, that's not humility, but it but it can sound like it <laughs> uh, if the comparison is right, and if you say things in the a kind of scientific tone, so I guess it's stuff like that that uh, is particularly gritting from my perspective.:
1: Oh, right. uh, it's so interesting because yeah you you're approaching this as an academic, and so like my relationship with the whole Brett and Heather Eric ecosphere I was introduced to them as as a media person. Like I'm a journalist. I'm a writer. I had been frustrated for several years with the way the media had changed, and you know this kind of framing around anything having to do with social justice was just like extremely re- reductionist. I mean, whatever. I talk about this ad nauseum. So when that when that evergreen thing happened and they were talking about how nobody would cover the story and like, you know, it seemed like most news outlets couldn't get their minds around a a lefty professor being accused of being a racist, whatever. I mean, that, I was very compelled by that at the time. And so I kind of, I I was quite captivated by the way, by the way they were talking. And so, but yeah, I can see if you're coming from, if, if you are a researcher, you're a serious academic you're not going to have the bandwidth for that sort of thing. But I think a lot of people kind of got sucked in the way, the way I did. There was just something really refreshing about it. So I yeah.
0: also wouldn't criticize you at all. Or I think that to some extent, Megan, you're probably extending too much uh, insight to academics. Cause like I say, I didn't pay attention to any of that initially and my, reaction was pretty much similar to what you described. Like, it didn't seem that surprising to me that you would have, uh, you know, a very left-wing university with social justice uh, advocate types reacting in an intolerant way. So the story didn't seem that, you know, there didn't seem anything really much to it. And also, the uh, you know, there was video, and those kind of things where people are yelling and whatnot. So it's it isn't until like digging into things and and looking critically at the content, which we try to do on the podcast, that a lot of things that you don't notice initially start to become apparent. And it, it like in the in the same way, I I think that there's some part where people who criticize jordan peterson for example uh that the people who haven't read his book or who haven't watched a significant amount of his lectures like his fans often get criticized for saying you know you need to you need to put it in context you have to have read his like 15 book articles on this topic and listen to his 20-hour lectures i'm not saying that but i am saying that uh the reason that people like Jordan have an appeal is real because they they are presenting information and, and there often is lots of content which isn't, you know, particularly tinged towards culture war topic. It's like on biblical analysis. Oh, yeah. And very that kind little of, thing.
1: of it. He only gets to culture war stuff like really far into Twelve rules, right? It's like on page three hundred something,
0: I think. Well, if I remember. Yeah, I mean, I think that he he's like he's an interesting case because he I I think there is depth to the to his kind of the meaning system that he's constructed right uh, around his his views, but now and I think increasingly it's it's become very like doused in culture war and politically. uh you know, the political content is not so deeply buried anymore. But uh, but but I think if you want to understand his appeal, it isn't just like, it, I think it actually does help to look at his material and to, you know, spend time with his content. I'm kind of, <laughs> I think, I feel in a way that I'm just saying what I do is right, but I I, I do think it helps to understand. It always but, takes
1: one to know one. You know, we're always the most critical of those in in whom we see ourselves
0: yeah and you you know I I work in the psychology of religion kind of field the cognitive science of religion that's my area and Jordan is uh was often talking about those kind of topics and so it's there's there's an academic interest there as well but the consuming his his content there is there's just immediate things like red flags (laughs) that pop out. And I think they would do to a lot of academics. There was an article written by, um, I think it's his old supervisor or the person who was partly responsible for him being hired at his job uh, in Toronto. They wrote about the experience of, they were a big supporter, a big fan of his and they become increasingly concerned about, you know, his growing platform and what he was promoting. And the, but the thing they described was they went to visit one of his classes and they watched it and he he was you know a very charismatic lecturer but but fundamentally mixing in like standard psychology and well established research with his idiosyncratic interpretations and these kind of grander narratives right which tie into political politics and potentially gender rules and so on and it was never entirely clear to the students which is which and you know i i think that that is a characteristic that i see a lot in in the idw types that they they are talking about real research they might have genuine expertise but it, it's it's all woven through this idiosyncratic often very heavily culture war frame and yeah i i feel that it's it's leveraging the credibility of you know your expertise in neuroscience or psychology or whatever to essentially argue a point which is highly political and and not really acknowledging that's what you're doing so maybe it feels a bit like false advertising.
1: Well, yeah, and speaking of that, I was just going to say maybe Jordan Peterson should like speak in a in a different kind of voice when he when he uh, you know puts forth his own opinions like there would be just some kind of code switch but do you know what just came to my mind is somebody else you've covered and that's jp sears oh yeah okay so and he's a guy who you know very was was very clearly defined his he had a satirical uh kind of part of his content and then he had this sort of earnest side of it and so he used so this is a do you want to just kind of set him up explain explain who he is
0: yeah, so J.P. Sears was somebody I think that rose the prominence through doing satirical videos about like vegetarians and uh, kind of ultra-spiritual woke people. He had a a website called, uh, or a, a YouTube channel called Ultra-Spiritual Life. But he, he also, uh, interestingly, and not many people knew this, was not just somebody making kind of satirical parody videos, but he was also a life coach and kind of practitioner. Oh yeah. Of the stuff that he was criticizing. He was
1: making fun of himself while well, as a way of selling himself. But the stuff was hilarious and he would wear he would wear like um he he had certain like signifiers like he would wear a feather or like a flower in his hair to signal that he was doing a satirical video.
0: Yeah, he he had like uh, if meat eaters acted like vegans videos, and he was kind of popular amongst skeptics and rationalists because he he pointed out hypocrisy in New Age spirituality or fad diet communities, that kind of thing. So he he was that <laughs> um, in general, and then he's now somebody that was recently at the the Trump's hotel. What's that, go the, oh,
1: uh, Mar-a-Lago.
0: Yes, that place. He was with Trump, and he his content became heavily red pilled. I think is the way that you would put it. And uh, there's a phenomenon which another podcast covers um, that we are quite fond of called conspirituality, which deals with the kind of overlap between the uh, spiritual, yoga, alternative uh, health communities, and this kind of growing overlap with right-wing, usually, conspiracies. Um, and it, it's a really popular area uh, that's seen a lot of growth. And J.P. Sears is kind of paradigmatic of that shift. But I, but I will say that in 2017, long before he, he went down that road, um, I, I wrote a piece on Medium called The Problem with J.P. Sears, which was... Highlighting the, ironically, given the conversation we just had, uh, about how his content actually contains, like, although it's parodying stuff, it is also invoking a whole bunch of kind of anti vaccine tropes and other kind of canards from alternative health communities. So I find him an interesting, dualistic character. But I didn't. I would not have predicted him to go the you know Trumpist route. But I, again, the kind of DNA for conspiratorial thinking and heavy doses of rhetoric were evident. Like uh, if you looked criti- critically at his content. Um, but I enjoyed the videos just as much as anyone else. So it's yeah. It, it's it's hard yeah. to tell.
1: Well, he – I can't remember what year this was, but I got really interested in him several years back, and I wanted to pitch a profile of him to The New Yorker. Mm. I really thought he was interesting. I mean, this was probably like – I mean, I don't know. This might have been 2016, 2017, maybe even earlier because, I mean, he did a couple – you know the parody stuff was hilarious i mean the one he does he did about ayahuasca where it's like this is what <laughs> this is what uh it it looks like on the inside you know when you're doing ayahuasca it was this like incredible psychedelic experience and they said this is what it looks like to other people you know observing you while you do it and he's like stumbling around in the yard and vomiting and I, it was just it was really I'm not doing a very good job of describing it, but one of the funniest things I ever saw just laughed out loud every time I watched it. And then he would also have these monologues where he would talk about kind of life issues in a really smart way. I thought he had one, um, you know, that was, should you have children? And he talked for about, no, 30, 40 minutes. And it was really. Profound. I don't think that's too strong a word. I thought it was just extraordinarily well done, and so I was quite taken with him. And I thought he would be somebody who was who would be worth kind of looking at. And now I'm like, thank God I didn't do that. Can you imagine <laughs> like yeah. a New Yorker profile of this guy?
0: Yeah, <laughs> it, would, it would be <laughs> the the kind of inverse of that Medium article <laughs> that I wrote. Like,
1: I would I, be canceled, like, retroactively. They'd have probably, yeah, the New Yorker would probably, you know, they'd have to retract the piece.
0: <laughs> it would be evidence of your inability to spot these characters, definitely. Exactly,
1: like, it, but, I mean, I'm pretty good at spotting that. I have a pretty good bullshit detector. And I was really surprised at the direction J.P. Sears went.
0: Yeah, I, I think with him, the... The issue is, I mean, the, I don't know if you've gone back and watched recently, but I had a, you know. Oh, it's relative. frightening.
1: I can't even, it's like a hot stove. I don't even want to get near it.
0: No, that's, that's possibly good. Cause when we covered him in the episode, I remembered his videos being, you know, very funny. And, and then when a uh, part of it is like, we're playing clips, audio clips on a, you know, uh, a podcast. So the context is a bit different, but the the comedy lands quite, quite flat, like uh, in twenty twenty one, and I, I wonder, you know, if if you thought now if you would still have the positive thing because in the same respect when I saw his life coach stuff, I didn't find it that objectionable. I just find it, you know, to be fairly, the com- standard for that genre. Nothing bad, that, you know, pretty much the the way that that advice tends to be, um, but. But the the thing that was there and like even at an early stage was the rhetoric, like the alternative medicine and alternative health rhetoric. So he's good at parodying those communities, but there's parts that he doesn't parody that you know relates to anti-vaccine sentiments and those kind of things. And it I, I also understand why this sounds incredibly pedantic, but there were parts in the videos where he would issue lines about you know trusting what the CDC or or so on say or what the American Heart Association says about trans fats or whatever. And it, it just because I was interested in like skeptical communities and those kind of things, those talking points immediately lit up. Oh, I know what those are from. And I, I know these kind of arguments, but he he's not supposed to be someone doing that. And then the more that you dig in, the more I like the medium piece that I done or wrote what part of it was looking at a particular video he did. And it was, I think it's only like a six minute video, but to go through all of the things that he packed in to that, it would have literally took me, like if I did it in audio format, it would have took like two hours. And in the article format, I just had to make a list of, you know, kind of rebuttals and it it still was massively long. So it's, yeah, I, I don't blame... Anybody, I think it's very easy with hand, hindsight bias to identify where everybody will end up, but I, I don't think that it's always that obvious. However, I think that within the IDW, that whole group, they've demonstrated repeatedly that they're very, very bad at acknowledging <laughs> whenever the signs are already clear, like the trajectory of Dave Rubin, the trajectory of James Lindsay, the trajectory of Gad Saad, all of these people. <laughs>
1: that was hilarious. Gad Saad, yeah. Sorry,
0: yeah, just, yeah I, that was. <laughs> and, and you know, I'd perfectly, I will also put Joe Rogan on that list, uh, who's, Who's someone whose content I've also consumed, but the warning signs again—they're really there from the start. Like he was a, a moon landing conspiracy guy back in the day. He had these very uh, vociferous confrontations with astronomers, um, arguing about how we didn't land on the moon. And you know that kind of reasoning is still the way that he approaches topics, uh, including vaccines, is is related to the way that he has always approached conspiracy-type topics. And I I get frustrated as, you know, we, we interviewed Sam Harris and we had a long back and forth. But it doesn't seem like Sam Harris or other people in that sphere are they regarded as, like, somewhat mysterious why these people have suddenly come out as anti-vaccine or pro-Trump and... Like that you couldn't have predicted this happening. And my counter argument would be many, many people did predict that. They not only predicted it, but they were highlighting to you when it happened and you were saying that they were wrong. And instead, at the end of the process, when Dave Rubin is where he is now, uh, it feels to me like there should be some reflection that maybe there's something that I have a blind spot to, or you know, people in that area have a blind spot to, um, because their fixation on wokeness and the excesses of the left. And I'm not saying this makes them then, you know, that they are signing up for T- Tucker Carlson's worldview, but it's more that it makes them uninterested in Tucker Carlson and Alex Jones and how that content relates to you know, Joe Rogan or their friends.
1: We're going to pause here for a brief message from our sponsor. You know, people often talk about going to therapy as if it's the easiest thing in the world. Well, in fact, it's hard to find a good therapist and it's also incredibly expensive, but there is an alternative and that is better help. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You connect in a safe and private online environment, and you have your sessions the way you want them, when you want them, online. This is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. The service is available for clients all over the world. There are counselors specializing in all kinds of things from depression to anxiety. LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem. Everything you share is confidential. It's convenient. It's affordable. And best of all, as a listener to this podcast, you will get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash unspeakable. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash unspeakable. Yeah, I think for audiences, there's something so delicious about watching, ostensibly highly intelligent, sophisticated people go off on wokeness, because it's not that delicious. Like somebody like me, it's not that delicious to listen to Dave Rubin do it or Joe Rogan do it. But if some super smart person is going to sit there and say the things you want to say in, in a kind of you know dressed uh, dressed up sort of Fancy sounding rhetoric—it's intoxicating.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't think you do a good job of it, too. but I—I I, I agree that uh, there's something of a you know a cathartic punching bag quality to it. But but part of the thing that frustrates me a little bit about it, and and maybe I mean, this might be somewhere where we disagree, is that. I don't see the criticisms of the like woke or the far left to be at all rare. <laughs> I find them entirely, you know, popular, huge audiences, something that is endlessly discussed on right-wing media and endlessly discussed on alternative media. Now, maybe the the like left-wing media in mainstream media in the US doesn't feature so much critical content, but... It's not hard at all to, to, you know, find critiques of those viewpoints. And yet I hear people talk about it as if it's criticisms that only dares be whispered, you know, in in the corridors and back rooms. But it's it's not the case. There's like, there's a massive audience for people who want to criticize woke Topics. And- no, I
1: know, but it's ma- but I I guess what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is that like if somebody when when I first encountered Brett and Heather, there was something really exciting about it because oh these are the sort of people that you do want to talk about these things. They're going to do it in a smart, nuanced way, and as opposed to Milo Yiannopoulos, like yes, these are the people we want in our corner. That that's what I'm saying. I mean, I think yeah. that.
0: No, I, I I take that point, and you. I think you are right that that is part of the appeal, and and there's there's very elegant, eloquent denunciations of you know the various woke excesses by by people within the IDW sphere. So that that is that's something that they're very good at. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: I like, mean, also like I guess I feel like these these parasocial relationships. I mean, is there do they? I, sometimes I feel like they need to be approached the same way you'd approach a healthy real life relationship. Like in real life you have to take people for who they are. You can't expect them to get everything right. You can't get everything from one person. Like you've got to, you've got to compartmentalize. There're going to be things you like about people and things you don't. And I guess that's how I try to be with a lot of these figures. I mean, you know, I'm I'm frustrated with the vaccine stuff and the ivermectin stuff with brett and heather but i really like heather i've i've had her on my show i really like talking with her about stuff like you know evolutionary biology issues and how that plays into feminism and and you know we're we're almost exactly the same age and growing up as girls in the 70s and the 80s and and you know what sort of where where evolutionary biology intersects with um you know, social politics w- around women, especially, like I love that, and so I guess I hope that that kind of conversation can be preserved, um even if somebody's rejecting a lot of the other stuff
0: so the the way I see it is not that you have to like I agree with you that you know people can contain multitudes, right, and there are topics that maybe they're conspiracy prone on and other ones that they're relatively good on. And, and also interpersonally, I think that people can hold a whole range of views. They can even hold like terrible views and interpersonally be, you know, nice people that uh, there's, that, that are fun to talk to and so on. But I, I think that I, what I sort of object to is when people like if you have friends in your real life and they're in the multi-level marketing and i i listened to a podcast recently where you talked about you know your experiences with multi-level marketing coffee which was interesting but but and a good example you know that like things that people could see as you know cancelable or i don't mean it like that but i mean like uh you shouldn't touch that at all but the the kind of economic realities are, are what they are. And I, I see that argument, but I also think that if people are, are friends and they were in the multi-level marketing, right. And they were going around kind of promoting multi-level marketing to you and your contacts, you might like that person, but you definitely would have an issue and you might, you know, you might bring it up with them. You might also warn <laughs> other people that like, this is a nice person, but they're, they're like into multi-level marketing. <laughs> they didn't invite speak. you
1: over just for dinner. They're, they're yeah. going to sell you some Tupperware.
0: And I, I find that the, and Brett and Heller are definitely included in this, that they have a very uh, like finger trigger sensitivity to criticism and to people that criticize them. And if people criticize them, they're basically bad faith ideologues that don't need to be interacted with anymore, that they've betrayed them. And if it was what you are, you know, kind of su- suggesting, which is people can have different opinions we're willing to accept, it shouldn't be that kind of reactionary to to criticism. But it, but it does feel that way. And I, I also think that, you know, whatever, it depends to a certain extent on what the Things that people are promoting. In the case of somebody promoting anti-vaccine and unproven treatments in a global pandemic, and if that's a big part of what they're doing, each person, you know, makes their own judgment. But I would find it hard not to bring that up, even with friends. Like I, I, you know, I've had friends, interpersonally, who've advanced anti-vaccine and conspiracy theories. And there's only a certain amount of bandwidth that you can have. And you know, you might value the friendship more than than attacking their beliefs. But it's different if the person has a huge platform and is, you know, like I would say Brett is highly and a highly important figure in how Ivermectin became so prominent in the discourse. And that's had a real impact on, you know, people's health and vaccine acceptance across multiple countries so i i kind of feel that you can criticize that harshly and if the people are the you know the, the right kind of people that they should be willing to accept that you know you are criticizing their opinions but you still have respect for them it, it would be kind of like if you were friends with andrew wakefield i i would expect that Andrew Wakefield is somebody that you could, you know, have nice conversations with, might have these really interesting opinions about institutional bias and so on. But fundamentally, he's like the figure leading anti-vaccine movements in, in the U.S. and beyond. So uh, it, I'm not saying everyone has to have that stance, but that's that's my kind of position on it.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure you've thought about this. How much of this is a YouTube phenomenon, the kind of person who is going to start their own channel and just be interested in talking enough and looking into a camera and going on and on for long enough to become a guru, is that in and of itself? Does that in and of itself disqualify a person from really being credible? <laughs>
0: <Does> it, <laughs> no. Is it a self-cancelling proposition? It, it It isn't. And like, we've tried to make the point that to some extent, you know, like there's a disparaging connotation with gurus and we the way that we have framed it particularly with the online secular gurus, it's it's overall negative, right? The 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 way that we uh, the kind the key characteristics that we identify of that set. But they're actually, you know, public intellectual or prominent thinker whatever you put to it is is fundamentally a neutral thing. People can be Carl Sagan types or they can be Andrew Wakefield types and there often is similar kinds of rhetoric or levels of confidence that individuals have and and you know charisma is a huge part of that so I don't think it's our position would not be that like anybody that takes on the the role of a public intellectual that promotes themselves and does multi R like individual lectures into a camera there's something special <laughs> about those people that's definitely true like but if you can you know monologue for hours um but it's more that there's a particular type of exploitative rhetorical style which i think is more toxic and more damaging and that's the main thing that we are critiquing and trying to push back on a bit is a particular type of guru, not the concept that anybody who advances an opinion or has their own uh like single person <laughs> podcast uh is is fundamentally you know a broken person i I don't think that, and academics are not averse to going on for ages, like you know that we do it on our podcast as well, and we may be the same kind of broken that lots of other podcasters are. But I I don't think that that is a bad thing. I think that's just the modern instantiation of, you know, what previously would have been people writing articles or appearing on talk shows or things like that.
1: Mm-hmm. But, but what's really interesting is the relationship between the audience and the person and the guru. And I'm curious, so your research it includes, you know, you, you, you study religions, ritual behavior, you know, this is a really kind of, um, this is really oversimplifying things, but, you know, comparisons to religion are often made, but, you know, wokeness is a religion or, you know, obviously these figures have a sort of, you know, insofar as they're worshiped in some cases by their audience, there is a kind of religious dynamic going on. Is that part of what, has drawn you to this interest?
0: Yeah. I mean, to some extent, yes. But I think like you highlight, you know, the religious comparisons, sometimes they're there particularly in the kind of purity and like devotion to specific figures. But often people use that comparison mainly as a rhetorical technique, right? The thing that they don't like is a religion, be it wokeism or anti-wokeism or whatever the case may be. But religion is like this big phenomenon that there's, it's all—it's so big, it encompasses so many aspects that it's, it's more almost always possible to draw parallels that are, you know, some case justified, some case exaggerated. But the dynamics that you see in religion with uh, like, you know, hierarchies and uh, devotion to, I, I actually think probably it applies more to Charismatic offshoots, like you know, uh, kind of be it of religions or be it of more cultish dynamics, that that applies, and the parasocial nature of like the Web 2.0 or whatever point we're on now, where you have interaction with the people and you have these gated communities to some extent, usually just by like a small amount of money, but that's enough to weed out most you know, non-properly interested people, that it has an inevitable thing where it creates personal, interpersonal dynamics that, that can be unhealthy, but don't have to be. So, you know, I think that it used to be a very one-way system with the kind of, the newspaper pundits or the the people on TVs or the people who wrote books that you know, the audience was there and people were attached to the writer that they liked or whatever, but they didn't have any relationship with them. But that's fundamentally changed now, where whether it's real or not, people feel a connection and they can often get interactions with the people, right? Be it through Twitter, be it through Patreon or whatever the case may be. And as with the gurus in general, I think the issue there is not like, the fact that this exists because you can't put the technology back in the box and and people like it for all the same reasons that they like, you know, clubs and sport communities that they used to belong to uh, or still do in many cases. But it's, it's that it can be manipulative and exploitative. And when it is, that's a problem, or it can be to some extent, you know, a healthy thing where there is less of putting people on pedestals and, and people are interacting with fans of their work who might have interesting perspectives and so on. So I think it's like too glib to condemn the whole ecosystem that exists on social media now for creating gurus, because I think those people in a different era would still be gurus. They'd just be doing it in a different way. It's it's their personality rather than the internet that the you know has created yeah. them.
1: Right. Well, I was looking at your bio, and we should say you are in Japan now because you're you're. Are you doing a fellowship, or you're you're working in a in a, in a psychology teach, lab?
0: I have a dual appointment. I teach at a university in a psychology department in Japan, and I I have a research uh, appointment at Oxford. So I'm I'm kind of split between the two.
1: Okay. Well and I noticed that your you know part of your expertise or part of what you study is the bonding effects of shared dysphoria. I'm curious what that means. Can you um give us a <laughs> yeah. uh, 5 second
0: uh, explanation. <laughs> yeah. Dysphoria is the jargon the psychology word for unpleasant, negative. And uh, so it's bonding effects of negative experiences and probably the paradigmatic examples are things like people going through conflicts together or being on tours of Judy experiencing war, or or a traumatic event in childhood, something like that. So going through those kind of experiences tend to bond you either with the people that were there with you or the people that have experienced similar sorts of things. And I've suggested, and I, I actually, uh, Brett, Weinstein and and other people have also suggested this that the for the IDW set like going through a public cancellation or some kind of woke uh, confrontation often serves as uh, a kind of dysphoric initiation,
1: like a trauma event. bonding.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> oh, but now okay, but go ahead. Go
0: ahead. <laughs> I know I I think there's something to that, but also uh, there's a there's a theory called costly signaling. Um, in kind of evolutionary psychology, anthropology, where it's that people who do things for a group which actually incur a cost are more believable, right? Because you can easily say, oh, I'm really devoted to this group. But if you actually do something that shows it, then you're more credible. Um, And they talk about, you know, various rituals serving this function as a costly signal. But in that respect, standing up, against the woke mob or, you know, coming out as a heterodox thinker is is seen by many in that sphere as a, I think the same thing, a credibility enhancing display where, you know, you showed that you were willing to incur a, a public or professional cost to, to do what's right uh, in your yes. eyes. So Yeah.
1: Yes. When you go, you really have to go. Or when you jump, when you jump, you really have to jump. I've heard, I've heard them describe it that way but uh, but there's also this thing now where i notice a lot of people want to be canceled or they brag about how they're canceled when they're really not canceled have you noticed this i'm so canceled you guys oh my god i can't i can't do anything i'm so canceled
0: or people putting kind of cancel be it right that that, i'm gonna definitely get canceled for this yeah like you should be so lucky (laughs) yeah it's i mean i i think that the people who dismiss entirely that you know cancellation is real or cancellation has any cost, like that's wrong. It, like it clearly does. At even at the very least, it can be very traumatic psychologically from people. But the the I think part of the reason that 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 narrative exists is because you can't really be cancelled by the opposing side.
1: No, like, that's only that's only adds to your currency. Exactly, exactly. you can only be cancelled by your own side.
0: So if you are somebody who has shifted sides for example like you were you know somebody who was pro who was very you know a normal standard liberal person and you now feel that that has been completely co-opted by the woke and so on and you know the right are starting to be nice to you and, and so on then there comes a point where you standing up to the like woke mob it's not actually against your professional interests it's very much in line with your new professional interests and your new group of followers and friends. And, you know, the, the brief thing to do would be to say something that would annoy that group or annoy both groups, but that, that doesn't. So, uh, yeah, I, and I think, you know, in the case of the trauma bonding stuff, like to give an example of someone who, uh, I, in all, in many respects I see as more reasonable than a lot of the people I criticize, like Sam Harris openly talked about, how his sympathy for Charles Murray came because he saw the same dynamics that he'd experienced, you know, in people criticizing him being applied to Charles Murray. And this made him, you know, want to rehabilitate him or give him a chance to say his piece. And so I really think it it sounds silly when you're putting it in comparison with people who have gone through, you know, civil wars or, or tours <laughs> of duty. But, but there's well. a... There's a basic part of don't human don't deny psychology. anyone their lived experience. The culture war is a real war. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah. And I and to some extent, you know, my m- myself and Matt are not from America uh, as my accent attests to. Um and that gives us a degree of attach- detachment from it, but also the, the growing up in in Belfast during the troubles has made, you know, when people are talking in the most catastrophizing language about the civ- collapse of you know s- civil discourse and all this kind of thing, it rings quite hollow. <laughs> and uh, I think that's the case for many people who come from different kind of backgrounds that they they view the American culture war as like influential, having an impact, talking about real things, but as m- incredibly overwrought for what it actually yeah. entails. Right.
1: Well, we gotta take anything we can get here in the US, especially as upper middle class white educated people, because, you know, we've been waiting for something to you
0: But, know, it, it, but you know, this is a point throw that the throw a woke, thick skin. Yeah. Yeah. This is a point that the woke and the, you know, the reactionary right Trumpists uh, agree on is that, you know, there is a fundamental huge conflict in society that the the institutions are collapsing and that you know there's prejudice is rampant and and so on so it uh, in both cases there is they disagree very much on the solution and what the actual problem is but the notion that society is broken is like a shared narrative
1: yeah and i think i mean as an american i will say i i feel the same way it is broken the institutions are collapsing it just depends on how you look at it it's yeah i mean it's uh yeah
0: i think for you know for non-americans it's very easy for us to think that america is broken I mean, look at what happened to <laughs> the aclu
1: our, our country is in tatters
0: yeah the, the, <laughs> the aclu
1: but, and planned parenthood have have turned their backs on us so uh, you know I, it's I,
0: the end but in those respects you know there's there's something still for all the stuff that goes on in america and all of the uh all of the outreaches that happen every week in and week out with the culture war. And, and I'm not saying there's no significant events, you know, Trump being elected was a pretty significant event for the world. Um, but I think the, like, it's still the case that, you know, lots of people want to go and live in America. The quality of life is high in most of your problems revolve around the fact that you have an armed citizenry. <laughs> that That is, and that's a secret value that the society will not give up. But that's where a lot of the issues stem from. And that seems like something that some people discuss some of the time, but for people outside of America, that's just like a huge thing is that often people have guns, like when they encounter the police, when the police are encountering them, when there's protests. The Kyle Rittenhouse case, for all of the you know the talk about the media misrepresentations and the uh, like, the political partisanship that surrounded it. For most people outside America, I think it's true to say that the thing that is just stunning is a young boy walking around with a rifle, and that's not that's that's apparently not illegal. It's a uh, that's surprising, and you know what happens from there is also not surprising. So, yeah, I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm I can sure see I'm good
1: No, no, <laughs> I can see how you could see it that way. I don't, it's not, I don't think it's it's the only thing, but it, it certainly makes sense that looking at it fu- that no. lens would be, yeah. It's
0: not, it's not the only thing, but it's certainly something that if you have like street protests that adds a potent dimension to it, which you know, doesn't exist in the UK. But can you
1: imagine or, if all those Yale students mobbing Nicholas Christakis had been armed?
0: Yeah, well, I, I remember in, in
1: Texas... Maybe it would have been better. They would have, you know... Yeah,
0: so. there was... I I just remember that the, I was talking to some academics in Texas when I was at a conference there, and they were, they were discussing about open carry and their kind of policies about their room, like when they have office hours about... <laughs> whether people are allowed to, you know, come in armed or or not. And it was just such an alien concept to me that, you know, I might be sitting facing a student, giving them some bad news about their result and they're packing the heat. Yeah, really?
1: You think rate my professor is brutal.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's uh, so, and you know, Japan is uh, definitely not like that. So I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to harp on that point, but it, that that America is in 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 a lot of ways an idiosyncratic place and it's its culture war definitely has an impact on lots of places. I mean, we cover it on the podcast and you the UK is really strongly influenced by America. But I think it helps sometimes to uh to not be from America when looking at these things. Um Oh it,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. I wonder if if your podcast could have even been Done by two Americans. Yeah, I actually never thought of that. You're really coming at it with with a with a lot of perspective. Well, one thing I want to make sure to touch on before I let you go, you you do have a standing offer for any guru you dissect to come on the show and defend him or herself. So I know Sam Harris I know Sam Harris took advantage of that. Um, uh, and but more recently, you had a guy on named Chris Williamson. Who I confess I was not familiar with. Um, he, do you want to explain him a little bit? He came up. He he was kind of a, a peripheral figure in the Gad sad yeah. episode. Is
0: that right? Yeah, we did an episode on Gad sad, the evolutionary psychologist, who's a very uh, contentious online figure, uh, and he he was interviewed on uh, Chris Williamson's Modern Wisdom uh, YouTube channel. So that was where we took the interview from. So the episode was primarily focused on Gad Sad, but Chris was kind of caught in the crossfire, fair to say. And I'd seen some other content of his with like an interview with Stefan Molyneux and some other uh, kind of IDW, Sargon of Akkad type figures that he'd covered. So I didn't have a favorable impression of him in general. And so he wasn't... Primarily, the focus of criticism on the on the episode, but he was criticized, and he, he in terms of appearance, he's like an extremely handsome guy. He's a and male it,
1: model. He's an ex model. You know, so many so many of these IDW people, they they come out of the modeling business, so it's not surprising.
0: That's that's interesting. I've not noticed that, but I I I mean, it's hard not to notice with him because he he is a male model and he was also a contestant on a couple of reality. TV shows, so um, and and we made some sarcastic remarks to that effect, um, and and then he reached out through uh, a journalist who has a, another YouTube channel called uh, Oh, it's uh, skip. Is Rebel this David Wisdom. Fuller? Yeah, yeah David, David, well, David
1: Fuller. Who? Yeah, I. Um, yeah, David and I know each other, so
0: yes. And figure in the you know the whole alternative media ecosphere but he he was uh he chris knew that david was in contact with us and and we covered david on another episode as well and uh yeah and he reached out and you know to have a conversation about being covered and the the criticisms that we raised and so on. So we we on the most recent episode we had uh to our conversation with him about that topic, which was which was enjoyable. It, it, I I enjoyed uh, like talking to him.
1: I thought it was. I have to say I when it started out, I thought it was gonna be a total cringe. But then by the end I found it useful and and even moving. I mean you know he he talked about things that have come up for me just in doing this podcast which is you know it's hard to know you 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 want to push back but at the same time you are a host you have invited somebody onto your show and he got at something that i think doesn't really get discussed enough out in the open which is that there's a power dynamic if you're a small podcaster and you're inviting someone to come on your show you know you're not paying them you're not you know they're in a lot of cases they're doing you a favor so the question is do you is it right to get into a fight with somebody on your show? I mean I talked about this when I had Sam Harris on this show because you know, I had had a case where I had you know somebody who was a pretty big celebrity, a big celebrity but who just doesn't think about about like you know the culture war issues the way I do all the time. Like this person just doesn't sit around obsessing about it. They had like certain talking points. They had certain abs- assumptions that they made that I felt were extremely oversimplified and pat. But then the question is, do you get into an argument with that person on your show? Is it, it I, I feel like that's kind of inviting somebody into your house and then yelling, you know, for dinner and then yelling at them. But at the same time, there is a responsibility not to let someone just spew nonsense on your show. And it's hard
0: no i I, I appreciated mo- almost all of the points that Chris raised and I will say that it's a dynamic that we are you know in- increasingly aware of from having to deal with people that have much bigger platforms than than us or, and and I think that if you haven't experienced people who are very like well versed in how to interact with media or how to present their particular views. That I'm not saying you, by the way. Obviously, you are. <laughs> but I mean, the, well, I get uh, it
1: wrong all the time. I screw up all the time. I think yeah, this well, interview is a disaster. you you're, yeah, you're, I'm getting I, I, totally railroaded by you.
0: That's it. That's it. When you have a skilled manipulator like me, it's just it's impossible <laughs> to control. But the, um, the I I think that that those dynamics definitely. Play and do it, and uh, there is an element where it's very easy to imagine that if you were in that seat, right, that you were sitting there talking to the person, and you knew these criticisms, that you'd be able to put it to them, and you wouldn't be able to let them, you know, dodge past it or to you do it in a way that it was respectful but critical. And it that's very hard because, like you say, you're you're juggling multiple things, including the dynamics when you're having an interpersonal conversation that. That people are just nicer than they are often, you know, in print or online, especially on Twitter. Um, but I, I agree that despite the fact that that all applies with these kind of ecosystems existing as they do, and the fact that people have platforms that they that they have, I increasingly feel that it's important for people to be willing to do that. And to prioritize it. And if the people that you're talking to are unable to deal with, you know, critical questions or, or find it disrespectful, I, I somehow feel that, that I, I have a, I understand how people react like that, but that is very different from the kind of person like that I am. And I, as a result, it feels a little bit, uh, hard for me to empathize with because I, I don't find people asking critical questions or disagreeing to be, you know, disrespectful or beyond the pale. I I mean that's part of why I'm an academic because I like disagreeing and debating things and and making arguments and all that kind of stuff. But that I feel that there's lots of people for whom that's their brand that they are somebody willing to have the hard conversations, they're somebody willing to, you know, challenge whatever Orthodoxy is out there, but in actual fact, they're very fragile, and they will not accept critical conversations, direct or questions directed at them. And I feel that that hypocrisy—it should be called out, especially if your brand is built on being, you know, a rough and ready debater. Different if there's somebody who, you know, doesn't frame themselves that way. Um, but but a lot of the people that we critique do represent themselves that way. And then their response to criticism is like extremely overwrought and and often, or just ignore it entirely. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I have noticed actually, even just sort of in my personal life, like some of the people who are the most kind of lordy and their personalities or, you know, people who have some kind of public profile who I happen to know personally, some of the people who come across as kind of the bravest and the, you know, most risk-taking edgy types in public are the most thin-skinned in private. It's, it's uncanny
0: actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that, I mean, but, it, but it, it definitely is a thing. Right. And like uh, the dynamics that Chris talked about where, you know, if you get a reputation for having critical interviews or somebody like blackballs you who's influential, it could cut off your access to lots of people. And I I think that's a real dynamic and like one that should be more openly discussed, because I think that if people are doing that, that. They, they, should they shouldn't be able to just, you know, damage reputations for asking critical questions. They should have people say, well, I was going to do an interview, but I said, I was going to ask about these topics and they, they said, no. So, you know, mm. I'm not saying you always have to do that. Like not always, but there, there are circumstances where it, it is reasonable for people to be transparent uh, where people are being like extremely hypocritical behind the scenes and presenting themselves as a different way in their public image. Um, right. Yeah.
1: The the problem is though, if you, um, are, if, if you kind of publicly capitulate or change your opinion or respond to criticism by saying, Oh yeah, you know, you may be right. Okay. Maybe I don't think that that hurts your brand. You're going to lose your audience, right? That's kind of wishy-washy.
0: Yeah, I hear this, but I don't know like I what I see is that there was this you know Eddie Izzard, the comedian, um, that used to be popular. So he had this skit that he did. <laughs> he used to be popular. Now he's just transgender.
1: He he was once
0: popular. <laughs> nice. Now he is something he's definitely less funny than he used to be. But nice. I know, I
1: loved him. I love I was a huge fan of his. Not that yeah. I'm not still, but yeah.
0: He's, you know he's still good but now he's doing running around in politics more but uh but he had this segment where he talked about you know when you're an adult and you break things that like admitting to it actually gives you kudos right because people say Well, oh, look at that person he's got character and you know he can admit when he gets things wrong or when he broke something so he did a you know uh I scared about somebody walking around the house smashing things and admitting to it. But <laughs> I, I see the same thing, uh, like the same logic at play whenever people admit mistakes or when they show a willingness to stand against what is seen as their in-group orthodoxy. That, yes, they get a hit from their diehard partisan community, the people that think you should never give an inch to the opposing side or you should, you know, that admitting that somebody had a good point is like selling your soul. If the person um, is, is of a certain caliber, but I, I see at least in the people that I respect online, a much greater respect and, and praise for people who show nuance and people who can admit when they, make a mistake and there's like a a parallel situation where in at the minute in social science fields after the replication crisis where there was all these issues about studies not replicating when people admitted about mistakes that they had done previously or research practices that were less than ideal they never got like leapt upon and you know criticized they got held up as examples of people who are doing science right Because they're admitting their mistakes and they're talking about what they did that was wrong, and the people that got the real hit are the ones that either kept doing it or denied that they had ever done anything like that. And and so I kind of see the claim that if you are willing to admit mistakes or to acknowledge uh, nuance to positions that you know maybe you didn't notice, like like say Sam Harris saying, I raised the point to him about the him talking a couple of years ago about the potential for a civil war in France uh, and the possibility of it being potentially at 50-50. And that seemed like, you know, a crazy prediction, but actually, and he, he kind of doubled down that that was, well, those predictions were going around and there were some people in mainstream journals that were talking about these demographic predictions and so on, but it felt like, he regarded if he said, "Well, that was a mistake, and I shouldn't have." Yeah, I, you know, it was a particular time, and that was a hyperbolic figure that maybe I shouldn't have cited or claimed that I wouldn't endorse now. That that would be somehow capitulating to critics, but to me, that's more like just showing you're you're not just about defending every take that you've ever had. That you're willing to say yeah, you know, I, I got that wrong or I, you know, the dynamics at the time made me look at that uncritically. So anyway, I'm sorry, Megan, I, I went on a ramble there, but that's, that's. No, no, it's really interesting.
1: That. I mean, I hope that that's true. I mean, it's interesting that that's true for researchers. Those aren't YouTubers. Like, I don't know that the algorithm award, I don't know that the algorithm rewards, I don't want to say nuance because, you know, everyone loves nuance now, but uh, yeah. It's I, a brand. <laughs> yeah. So who, okay. Who are your, who, who is the audience for Decoding the Gurus? Are they people who are fans of these characters or are they haters of these characters?
0: Do you Both? want the, the audience that we want to pitch at or the audience that we have? Which would you like to hear? That <laughs> well,
1: I, this is radical <laughs> honesty here. So. Okay.
0: So I I will say we get a surprising amount of feedback from people who are fans of the people that we cover and often they don't remain fans it's true but in in many cases we get a lot of comments where they had heard criticism from various people and they didn't find it compelling didn't convincing because they felt it was coming from political motivated places but they they did find uh our criticism to be you know potentially s- expressed in a sarcastic and cheeky way but that there was substance behind the things that we are pointing out and that it caused them to reevaluate. In many cases, it doesn't cause them to completely uh, abandon the people, which is also not something that we are demanding that, you know, people (laughs) should do to listen to the podcast. But the, so that, that is very, uh, that's, that's very reinforcing. But of course, you know, it's a self-selected sample. On the other hand, we definitely have an audience which is from people who dislike the people that we cover and are kind of enjoying the taking down of the people Schrad that they... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that deserve it. And as Chris Williamson said, that includes potentially, according to him, people within that sphere who hope that we will cover, you know, somebody that they don't like. And I I get that, and and we're not we are in no ways you know completely immune to. We know what uh, episodes will do better than other kind of episodes, and so we we try to respond to that and to you know to go against type uh, at times. Uh, but but that's it. And I I think that also there's. From the feedback that we get, probably because we are academics, we get uh, quite a lot of comments from people who are, you know, have a foot in academia or are interested in psychology or kind of academic type topics. So that seems to be a significant portion of people that listen, or at least people that contact us. Um yeah, and, and culture war. <laughs> People like you know, fans of Sam Harris will come just to listen to us argue with Sam Harris or something like that. But, but I, they ten, I don't think they'll stick around very uh, long. So, so yeah, I, I think that's the general thing. I I'd like to think we probably have a substantial amount of what would be called the heterodox uh, sphere more so than other podcast which would be critical, um, you, th- that would be seen as you know kind of more woke inclined. So uh, wait a second, wait, wait,
1: heterodox. Those people tend to sympathize with IDW types.
0: They do, but you know, there's that's a big sphere. I I often get accused of like flattening it, but you know, Steven Pinker and Jonathan Haidt are classified as heterodox, as are Dave Rubin and Gad Sad, and there's quite a difference. In those two, well, they countries. should. Yeah,
1: exactly. I think that yeah, Dave Rubin needs to be kicked out of heterodox. <laughs> yeah.
0: He's not even yeah. heterosexual. Yeah, that's this is true. There are people who you know have are their platforms are huge and and also their partisanship is no longer really debatable. It's it's like if you're not seeing that, you've got big problems. Yeah, so, no, Dave.
1: Dave Rubin. I think that there's no not a lot of argument that he. He doesn't. Yeah, I keep. There needs to be a better name for all of this. IDW was terrible. Heterodox is terrible. It is. Somebody needs to come up with something better.
0: That, don't. It's a one thing, like Megan, you know, you talked to, that said, you know, maybe the audience is not completely there. But like, I think that you know, take a show like Blocked and Reported. Um, it's very successful, and regardless of the fact that there will be people who regard it as. You know there were people who always regarded as kind of uh extremely biased right uh, in some respects, but they have tried to make it a virtue or at least something that they tried to do where they will issue corrections and yes. they will they're kind meticulous. Of highlight. yeah, and like I still. I still find I enjoy Blocked and Reported, but every time I listen, I find a couple of things that I am, you know, kind of scratching my ears at. Um, usually from Kitty, but uh, your two time guest. But I, well, and Jesse's I, been
1: on the show too. And I was the first guest ever on Blocked and Reported.
0: Oh, yes. that's, uh, that's yeah, the first, the, the time first they had a guest. Yes. The first guest of the first ever podcast. But I, I, just, <laughs> I, I don't require that, you know, I'm not saying this in that I want, everything I listen to to just make me feel that I agree with everything. But I mean that that they've got a big platform and there's lots of these kind of fairly niche podcasts that have huge audiences like QAnon Anonymous. It's it's like you would be very shocked at how large they're, they, they're bigger than blocked and reported. Wait, oh, Pinterest. sorry. is
1: Q, I don't know what QAnon Anonymous is. Is it like a taking apart QAnon, or is it exactly. a QAnon thing? Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I but imagine a,
0: a like twice weekly podcast that is just on that topic, and it's it's one of the biggest podcasts. So it, you know, I think the audiences are. I, I'm not saying that they're like you know politically, like heterodox. They're not, but the uh, the room for niche topics or like p- people who value nuance. It doesn't seem that small of an audience. And yes, no, Tim, Tim Pool is going to be millions, but who wants to be Tim Pool?
1: Right. No, I agree. I think that, I think blocked and reported is excellent. I think Katie and Jesse work really hard. Katie likes to brag about how she doesn't work hard, but no, they really do a lot of work and they dig into things. Um, but I do think that that's an exception. I don't think there are a lot of blocked and reported out there.
0: That's, that's um, possibly true. It's possibly uh, true, so um, <laughs> I'm I'm yeah. doing selective sampling. Uh, well, for you, yes. Well,
1: that's uh, yes. As is your as as is your want as a as an academic. <laughs> well, uh, I'm kidding you.
0: No, no, yeah, I, <laughs> I, and I, like the last thing I just want to mention, Megan, is like by you, for example, having me on, wouldn't that put you in that? sphere of people yeah but i don't have like, a very
1: big audience well okay that's it
0: that's a, yeah that's why i, I brought I,
1: you on i'm trying to try yeah. to drag your audience over to me
0: i don't think that's a good strategy for growing a large audience but but i i appreciate your you know diverse strategies because uh yeah the,
1: well i tried that's the thing i mean i i mean look i i, I have a I have a healthy audience, I but it's not blocked and reported size. And I think that, you know, it would be easy for me to say, oh, well, they have a big audience because they obsess about woke every, every week. But I think they have a big audience because they, they do a, a spectacular job and they just, they also, their timing was, was really good. Um, but no, I think I, cause you know, I try to do a variety. I, you know, I try to, I have authors. I try, I don't talk about cancel culture, Every week, I talk about it like every third week. Um, so I think that that's kind of um, that's kind of a, a liability. But well, Chris, decoding the gurus—it's it's a really fun and fascinating and smart podcast that you co-host with Matt Brown. Do you is there is there a, an, a limit to it? Are you going to run out of gurus, or do you think
0: you're going to be able to sustain this? No, just no indefinitely. People sometimes say that, but we. We asked people to submit suggestions, and we made like a Google Doc that people could enter. And it's now oh, it's like, like the
1: shitty media men list of
0: You yeah, uh, know, in, 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 in a way, with absolutely no impact on them. <laughs> but yeah, it's thirty-five pages long, now. and the and every week we get people suggesting people, and it, like when we dig into an area, we tend to find all these people that we have no awareness of, like you know there's so many communities online and so many subcultures and and so many people occupying this role that that you and I have never heard of that have millions of followers. Like we, you know, we did the meat episode with Michaela Peterson and it was a guy with like a couple of million followers, just, just talking about meat. So there's, there's something for, (laughs) there's a guru for everyone. So we'll, we won't have an issue with content, just, our, our willingness to, to deal with it really. And, uh, yeah, that, that might not be unlimited, but you know, I've been listening to stuff like this for decades and I'm still doing it. So it's probably okay for a while, as long as Matt can continue handle conversing with me, it'll last.
1: Well, you're doing the Lord's work, not only with (laughs) your show, but by coming onto my show so that's
0: the, yeah that's it as a, a former catholic irish catholic i i appreciate the the sentiment the the it's often how i free myself to my parents i'm 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 just doing the lord's work in my own way <laughs>
1: yeah. as are we all well chris cavanaugh thank you so much for coming on the show
0: it's been a pleasure and uh sorry for waffling so much that's that's also an not irish at case. all
1: that's why we have all the time in the world that's that's what podcasts are for.
0: <laughs> that's, that's true. Seeming so the world one long-form podcast at a time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Thanks.
1: That was my conversation with Chris Kavanaugh, co-host with Matt Brown of the Decoding the Gurus podcast. Chris is a postdoctoral researcher in cognitive anthropology at the University of Oxford, and he is currently based in Japan. He is originally from Belfast. This is the Unspeakable Podcast. If you would like to support the show, there are several ways to do so. The first is to join the Patreon at patreon.com slash theunspeakable, where joining at any level gets you early, ad-free access to the podcast. And joining at higher levels gets you other things, such as 10% off your first purchase of official unspeakable podcast, Nuanced AF Merchandise. Valentine's Day is less than a month away. What better gift for your critical thinking honey than a Nuanced AF hat, mug, shirt, sticker, or magnet, if you're not feeling all that committed? You can also make a one-time donation to the show by going to the website at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donate button. Finally, you can just leave a rating or a review, ideally positive, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.